You're listening to the Fitness and Wellness Class, powered by NASM. NASM's new subscription service, NASM Connected, is the best value in fitness. When you sign up, you'll get access to everything you'll need to expand your career, master new disciplines, and stay up to date with your certification in one great package. Gain instant access to over 350 online fitness courses available anywhere, anytime, on any device. Earn CEUs for dozens of approved providers. Plus, unlock articles, webinars, videos, and podcasts from the biggest names in fitness. Don't wait. Sign up today and unlock the best content in fitness at the best price. Get connected at nasm.org connected or call one 800 460 6276. Hey everyone, Tony Ricci here again at NASM Optima 2020, our virtual conference. And today I'm going to share a subject matter that is very dear to my heart. I work at a university and we talk about this with great frequency because I think Beyond everything else, this is something that we as a nation, we as an organization, as the NASM team, as fitness professionals must confront and challenge soon. And the title of today's presentation is Diabetes. We are so close to preventing it. And what I want to share is a host of different research, a host of different strategies that show as we progress through today's presentation, it does not take much to turn back a condition that is now going to be nearly 50% of the United States adult population in 10 years. That potential right there that Americans, I just wanna, before we go anywhere, think about this. One in two Americans by 2030 could be pre-diabetic or type two diabetic if we do not make significant changes starting now. So today, as we progress through this presentation, let's take that into consideration. My background is an amalgamation of numerous disciplines, if you will, okay, and certifications only because I've dedicated my life to this entire subject matter. So it's a, a combination of nutrition science, sports science and exercise physiology, and also sports psychology, which I went to later in my life, because I began to realize that whether it's in sport performance, whether it's in dietary practice, whether it's in one caring for their health, most people have a pretty good idea on what to do. They just don't always get it done. So it's been a mission of mine now to try to influence individuals' behavior so they can improve long-term health. Where are we in the United States? We're going to look at it. And I'm, I'm sometimes sorry to say the news isn't very good right now, but I'm going to have to share it with you anyway. Why are we here? Why do we have the rates of obesity and the potential rates of type 2 diabetes that we just mentioned? We'll look at some factors. Everyone has a different opinion as to why it might be, but of course it's multifactorial. We'll discuss that together because if we know some of the reasons why, then we could potentially make some substantive changes. We're going to talk about the pathophysiology of type 2, just how much this disease attacks almost every system in the human body. 
Very often with my students, I really emphasize this because I want them to know that type 2 diabetes is unrelenting to every system in the body. And by doing that, I hope to create a sense of urgency in then their fitness mission, their nutrition mission, their health mission in years to come will be to help people prevent this particular condition. We'll review the symptoms, the criteria. We're not medical physicians, of course, but it's good to know. It's good to know these numbers. What are the numbers that say, hey, this person is pre-diabetic or diabetic? Many of you are very familiar with them already, but we'll take a quick review. When a client comes in and someone says, you know, my blood glucose was 140, well, we want to know right away what that means. It's not our job to treat it. The very fact that we're working with them in exercise or nutrition counseling, as we'll talk about, is going to have an immediate effect, an immediate effect on reversing this condition. Okay, that's the wonderful news that we're going to share today. So physical activity, what's its role in prevention? Is there a best nutritional practice? The answer, of course, is probably not. There are some guidelines that we have to follow. But the wonderful news is we go through today's presentation, you take one or two steps, and you're going to see an immediate reversal in this condition. Not a permanent reversal, but the research is going to show you that one or two days of physical activity has a very, very positive effect on turning this condition around. The prudent lifestyle, what does it mean? You all know, just a few small changes will go a long way in preventing this particular condition, all right? And then, look, how can we guide the client? All of that works together. And as we go through, I think you're gonna say, you know, Tony, I, I knew all that. I knew that already. I wouldn't be surprised because that's the good news. That's why we're close to preventing this condition because we don't have to make enormous changes in one's lifestyle, just a few smart ones. So I very often share this, I've shared this map in a previous presentation with NASM Optima, and I do feel it to be very important. Why? Because of the fact that this is where and the direction we're going. This is a 2018 CDC map. I do not believe 2019 is out yet. I've been looking for that. The reason probably, as you all know, the CDC has been tied down with some very big issues in the last six months. But as of 2018, as we look at this map together, what we're going to see is currently deep red states. Those deep red states have an obesity rate of greater than 35%. Now, you can say, well, Tony, you know, the behavioral risk factor surveillance survey, the BRFSS is not perfect. It's not. Aggregating data on obesity and diabetes in any, with any methodology is not perfect, but it does give us an overview. As a matter of fact, one could argue that some of this data is self-reported, and maybe it's worse. I hope not. But nine states in the United States of America right now have greater than a 35% obesity rate. Diabetes and obesity are a couple. Eventually, they're going to be married. You have now 22 states in the country with greater than 30%. The map shows that in a lighter red color. And there's only one state left in the United States with an obesity rate under 25%. So these numbers I find quite alarming. And as an NASM certified professional, as a team member, this is part of our mission. It's actually, I would say, socioeconomic. It's sociopolitical. 
We have to improve the health of the United States. It's not a matter to an extent of which healthcare delivery system is best. You can argue for a nationalized system or a Medicare for all, no objection. You can argue for privatizing it and making prices competitive. Any way you see fit to bring healthcare to all Americans is suitable. But if we have an obesity rate that continues to climb and a nation that's going to be in excess of 40% obesity amongst a third of the states, we're not going to be able to handle that independent of the medical delivery system. 2030, 2030, one in two American adults, if we continue on this pace, will be pre-diabetic or diabetic. So I think NASM and all of us as professionals have a mission to stop this, to help people mitigate this condition, in, this one condition in particular. And the good news is we're so close. There's not much that needs to be done. Just a few wise choices, a few smart decisions, and we immediately start turning this around. So, of course, we're going to ask, uh, how did we get here? Okay, what has caused these alarming rates of obesity, the propensity for us to get type 2 diabetes as we age, and it's multifactorial. Uh, there are, there's never one reason. And sometimes we like to look for that one reason, so it makes it easier to solve a problem. But it's, it's too difficult to say, okay, well, it's just because of this, and it's just because of that. And if we just did A, all of these issues, obesity, heart disease, and diabetes would go away. It's not. We need a multifaceted approach, of course, but number one, I think right now is inactivity. So in everything we do today, we continue to produce technology that makes us do less. Right? Miss Alexa over there can turn on our TV, turn on our lights. I don't have to get up anymore to even play music and push a button. That can be done. We continue to develop technology that makes life more and more convenient and reduces the activity of daily living. On top of that, we see a lot of cuts to physical education programs. And there's another problem too, really in the structure of sport for our youth, either athletes or playing at the elite level, well, there's very little left for the others that may not play in a club sport or a very competitive sport, very little left for them to remain physically active. And this goes on while we have actual cuts physical education program. So inactivity obviously is a major cause amongst our youth, and that later translates into adulthood. No doubt processed foods. We are eating things that really did not even exist maybe less than 100 years ago, right? We strip the nutrients out. We strip the fiber out. We add some sugar. We throw in some extra fat. So the food structure is actually foreign to most of our physiology. Years ago, we just could not consume the amounts of sugar that we can ingest in one day now, right? We did not have various things such as HFC. And again, it's not that just sugar or one component of our dietary practice is contributing to diabetes alone. We're eating far more calories, far more protein, fat, and carbohydrate. But the nature of the food, its caloric density is super high and its nutrient density is super low. And this is adding to the obesity and the insulin resistance that accompanies diabetes. And we've already mentioned too, a third contributing factor, which is being overweight. And that obesity, 
crises inevitably leads to a type 2 diabetic condition. They are very interrelated. So hence, we must find ways. And as we chat through the presentation, we'll see, wow, that's all it takes? Really? Just a few small changes to mitigate obesity and to manage the type 2 diabetes. I want to talk about the pathophysiology. Why? I want to really look at what this condition does. And I'd like to emphasize this with my students because I want them to realize the magnitude. It's really incredible. In terms of type 2 diabetes, it is as if once we get it, there is a brilliant design, a brilliant cascade of things that go wrong. Just one, two, three, four, five, perfectly planned almost. And this is something that we need to be aware of because I think it really helps create a sense of urgency in us as fitness professionals that, oh, wow, this is not just something where I got to manage blood sugar. If I don't manage this, I am going to lose the efficiency of most of the systems in my body and potentially cut life back, life quality of life and years significantly. So what do we know that 90 to 95% of all diagnosed is type two, right? Type one is a congenital condition in which the insulin um, is not produced by the body. So we have the white blood cells, if you will, or the immune system. It's an autoimmune disease and it attacks that pancreas. And oh gosh, the beta cells are destroyed and now we can't make the insulin. Type two, however, is something in most cases that we bring about on ourselves, starting with insulin resistance, right? a disorder in which cells do not use the insulin properly. And that is largely the skeletal muscle cell, which has a transport for glucose. And why is it largely skeletal muscle? Well, if we look at ourselves, right, the vast majority of our body is covered in skeletal muscle. So if we are not able to effectively transfer carbohydrate, glucose from the bloodstream into that skeletal muscle, then that sugar will build up in the blood, obviously. And that's the insulin resistance. And that is where we start getting the elevated levels of blood sugar that propose numerous problems in the human body. It is the aggregate, as we said earlier, of inactivity, a poor diet, in some cases a stressful lifestyle can contribute, a lack of sleep. It's very much cumulative and a holistic approach can really help to neutralize the effects of this condition. You know too that if we don't sleep well, appetite changes. Some data shows we increase sugar cravings, carbohydrate cravings when we don't sleep well. So we need to try to put into place a global or holistic approach to help individuals to prevent or reverse the condition. Additionally, some ethnicities are more susceptible to diabetes. And that's in the African-American community, Hispanic, uh, Latin American community, Asian Pacific. So we really want to help them to navigate through dietary practice so that we make sure that the propensity or the inclination to this condition doesn't come into fruition. So this is something that we want to be on top of all the time. Okay, well, this individual is eating in this capacity. They're 25 years of age. We want to make a change now because of the susceptibility to type 2. Now is the time we've got to make a change or we're going to be confronted with a host of side effects from the condition. 
So let's take into consideration who is most susceptible. What can we do to help? What are the practices we can put into play with physical activity and the dietary practices that are going to help to neutralize the condition? And amazingly, this has become more common among children. And I don't know how we're pulling that off to think that somebody 18 years of age or even younger is having insulin resistance, meaning that the transporters, the GLUT4 transporter in their skeletal muscle will not respond to insulin because that insulin has been so high for so long. It took my family, those who did get diabetes, 80 years to do it. I don't know how we're accomplishing it at such a young age, but this to me is a sense of urgency. Because if you're starting with a child in their teens with a condition that really destroys every system in the body, what is the quality of life at 25, 30, and 35 years of age? Think about that and what we've done with our food structure and our lack of activity in the United States. We're almost accomplishing things that are not possible or never before have been conceived as possible. So I like to look at this condition or, gosh, I would say, well, I don't like to, but it's a way I phrase it as human rusting, if you will. And I put up a slide and what do we have there? A picture of a ship that is stationary. And as it is, it's kind of rusty. And why would I give that analogy? Because unfortunately, with type 2 diabetes, it would pro we'd all probably be better served if we got it and we felt dizzy and had to take an A. Or all of a sudden, we had stomach pain. Or we had a headache. That would be advantageous because we would know something's wrong and we might immediately change our behavior. However, I use the term rusting because slowly, the elevated levels of glucose destroy things in our body, particularly anything that relies on small blood vessels. And that is almost everything. The impact of the condition is global. What we have in front here is a diagram that shows you the systems that are impacted. And the cardiovascular system, number one, both macro and micro, the coronary arteries, the heart, the cardiac, the cardiomyocytes, the Cells themselves of the heart are impacted. Microangiopathies, all of the small blood vessels, 70 to 75% of every diabetic dies of type 2 diabetic will eventually die of cardiovascular disease if left untreated. And that's largely due to the impact it's having on the cardiac tissue and the blood supply to it. Additionally, uh, the blood pressure increases. This is to me fascinating that just almost coincidentally, when we have type 2 diabetes, it downregulates nitric oxide. That's a vasodilator. That helps our arteries to open up, stay clear, increase blood flow. Type 2 downregulates that, and it upregulates endothelin 1 as example. What is that? A vasoconstrictor. It's not bad. It's just bad to have it chronically elevated. And that's what this disease does. So high blood pressure can come in part from that chronic constriction that we see in diabetes due to the upregulation of what shouldn't go up and the downregulation of something that should go up. So that's part of the problem we see in type two. Retinopathy, yeah, the eyes, we know that. Small blood vessels, and we can start to lose vision because again, we have to remember if it's a small blood vessel, it's going to be really banged up by high levels of glucose. We have nephropathy, the kidneys are directly impacted. Neuropathy, 
So earlier too, I mentioned cardiovascular disease. It's something to consider too, that the autonomic nervous system where the heart rate is actually controlled in the ventral lateral medulla of the brain, well, you have the vagus nerve, you have the spinal nerves, they help control and regulate heart rate. They increase heart rate, they decrease heart rate, the vagus nerve particularly. Those nerves are impacted by type 2 diabetes. This is also why we get neuropathies and nerve pain. You're literally having nerves that in essence are dying because of the lack of blood flow and nutrient flow. Beyond that, we see it in gum disease, diabetic ulcer. Okay, the inability to heal and the loss at the distal limbs due to the small blood vessels and the distal portions of the body, the fingers, the toes. So this condition is slowly taking just about every system we have available and, as I said, rotting it away or breaking it down slowly. We don't, certainly I don't, nor am I qualified to elaborate on all the negative impacts it probably has on the brain. I'm not sure we know just yet the full extent of what diabetes and type 2 diabetes is doing to the brain, but certainly it isn't having a very positive effect. Also, the brain's, the brain's reliance on small blood vessels or reason to believe that that too and some of the brain cells are going to be directly impacted by the condition. So look at the global effect. One disease could mean hospitalization for eight different conditions. So the symptoms, right? We just go over it a quick review. Again, we're not physicians, we're not treating it, but certainly we'd like to be able to refer a client if we were suspect of them having some of the symptoms that are consistent with it, but we have the frequent urination and that's uh, really where diabetes mellitus comes from, excessive urine output, sugar, okay, right? The term in its Latin. And that's because we've got to rid that blood sugar feeling thirsty due to the loss in the polyuria and releasing the sugar in the body, hungry, right? Why would we be hungry? Well, it's, it's amazing because you have all the sugar in the blood, but you really can't get it to the majority of the cells, particularly the skeletal muscle. You might have a lot of adipose tissue and stored triglycerides and fat cells, right? And yet we're not burning that effectively. So the amazing kind of paradox of type 2 diabetes is we have all this energy in the body and we're not utilizing it. So what would that make you do? Become hungry while there's a, an abundance of energy. As stated, that is one of the terrible paradoxes of this condition. You're full of energy and yet can't really access it very effectively. So extreme fatigue could be a problem along with the hunger and blurred vision if it advances enough. In some rare instances with type 2, we'll see weight loss, but that's much more common with type 1, which will onset earlier. And certainly tingling, nerve pain, numbing in the fingers, all right? Those are things long-term. Particularly, you'll see that more in the foot and the hand and the distal portions of the body as the disease advances. So some of the criteria, if you take a blood glucose test at any given point and it's greater than 200 milligrams, that's probably something that we need to take into consideration, particularly two or more readings of that, okay? You can have other tests done too. You know, the fasting glucose, a 10 to 12 hour fast with water alone. If you've gotten two readings equal to 126 milligrams per deciliter of blood sugar, right? One, let me say two or more times, then that would be diagnosed as type two diabetes. 
So it's good to know these numbers. It isn't our job to treat this. It's our job to help promote and supervise the activities that can help reverse this condition or even prevent it. The physician will take care of the treatment side, but we may often work with them. So knowing the numbers is extremely valuable. There's something called the OGTT, right? Oral glucose tolerance test. And what do you do there? You give the individual 75 milligrams of glucose. You wait two hours. And if they have a blood sugar level in excess, again, of 200 milligrams per deciliter, that's tuned or deemed to be type 2. And then you have the A1C test. That is the glycosylated hemoglobin, a, a good test. There are arguments about, you know, just how predictive it is of long-term type 2 diabetes. But what that is doing is measuring the amount of sugar in the red blood cell over a longer period than the snapshot version we get with the other tests. So red blood cells will live somewhere in the range of 120 days. A1C looks at how much of the sugar was in the blood that binds to the hemoglobin in the red blood cell. That's why we call it glycosylated hemoglobin. And sugars like to bind with proteins, right? Glucosamine is a sugar and an amino acid, and we use that for the joints. But unfortunately, when sugar binds with that hemoglobin in the red blood cell, it isn't very good. And A1C tells us over this period of 120 days, just how much sugar has been kind of running around that blood. Yet, we've talked about the condition, how widespread it's becoming. Not enough people being physically active. Not enough people making uh, prudent nutritional decisions. Yet prevention is so close. This is the really exciting news. And I hope as I speak to you today on this that, that you'll feel the same way about it. We don't have to do much. That's the encouraging part. I think sometimes, and I've been guilty of this, we have a tendency to believe that everyone is going to exercise and feel amazing. And they're going to get a run as high. And unequivocally, there's no way you can't feel great after exercising. And for most of us, I believe that's true. However, I'm not sure that everyone goes jogging and feels magnificent. Or maybe they lift a weight and don't feel or get the incredible feedback that we do. Maybe it's okay. And they're just kind of doing it because they know it's good for them. Well, that's the population we have to encourage. Those that are different than ourselves, like we can't wait to get in there. Um, many of us have been out of a gym for six months or in some areas, five months, could not wait to get back in. Other people may feel, you know, hey, I'll do it. It's good for me. I'm, I'd rather play golf, but, you know, lifting weights and cardio is not something I'm in love with. Well, we have good news for that. And it starts with knowing that so little can prevent. And you look at some of the statements in the research of physical activity. This is the great news. Take a look that one of the first things that happens, right? You start to exercise. Even if you have type 2 diabetes and you decide, hey, I'm going to go for a walk around the block. Well, what's the good news? Immediately, we start utilizing that glucose. And it's not sitting in the blood anymore. We're utilizing that glucose. And you might say, Tony, well, you just said in type 2 diabetes, one of the major problems is getting that glucose through a transporter, right, into the cell. That is correct. But the beautiful thing about physical activity is it's not, ins once you're exercising, insulin is not the primary mediator of the glucose uptake. Okay, that's at rest. So what am I saying? 
if I'm behind a desk and I'm working away and I eat a donut, I'm going to need insulin to get that blood, uh, that glucose in my blood into that muscle cell. But you know, the second I start walking, there are mechanical mechanisms and other mechanisms that facilitate the glucose into the muscle. And that makes sense. It's a great evolutionary design. If I'm running for an hour, I didn't have a chance to eat a lot of carbohydrate. So I certainly don't want to be insulin dependent because my insulin level is not high. So what do we do? We have physical activity. We start to pull that glucose out of the blood immediately just by walking around the track. This is wonderful. So right away, the person with that high, that 140 milligrams per deciliter starts to use that glucose that was sitting there. Great news. Get it out. Clear it out. Additionally, one single bout of exercise, right? One single bout, okay, can increase the insulin action, the glucose uptake, and the sensitivity of a glucose 4 transporter on your muscle cell. One bout for nearly 24 as much as 72 hours. Now, let's think about that. This Here is a person that has been very sedentary till the age of 45. They're working behind a desk. They have a high-stress job. They don't sleep much. They don't have access to a lot of great food. They have high blood sugar, and they are a bit insulin-resistant. They're type 2. They're, they're now officially type 2 based on that criteria. Well, they go for a 25-minute walk, and they immediately start the reversal of that condition. Now, that's not permanent. You can't walk once and then obviously turn this condition around. However, there's the good news. You can say to that person, one walk, one ride on the bicycle, one with the elliptical, or you want to come in. I'm going to teach you just hit the heavy bag and do some light punching. The physical activity immediately impacts this condition. And that to me is wonderful news, particularly that all types of activity do it because we could best marry the physical activity they like the most, okay, to their program. And that keeps them going. So, one bout, 72 hours. But this is why we say, okay, that we must try to train every other day because at least three days a week because it may not last as long as 72 hours in increase in insulin sensitivity and glucose uptake. So what do we do? Hey, Monday, Wednesday, Friday. And we're ensuring that we're improving blood glucose levels and improving the sensitivity of the glucose transporters. Wonderful news in my opinion. What do we know? Aerobic works beautiful. Not all of the actions of weight training are understood, but it helps. And it does appear unequivocally that when you marry the two, um, that they're going to work beautifully. And the, the mode and the duration can be important. But when you take a look at what I just stated at the frequency, the intensity, and the duration, they don't have to be outlandish. They are the basic guidelines. Three days a week. Increase activity of daily living matters. So if they come to you as an NASM trainer, you do half hour weight training, half hour of cycling with them, or 20 minutes of some cardiovascular activity, and then they increase the activity of daily living, that can combine to their total duration for the week. Walk to work 20 minutes, walk home 20 minutes, work out with you for one hour. 
Think about that in one day. That's an hour and 40 minutes. If that's done every other day, we're meeting the minimum criteria of at least two and a half hours per week. And it doesn't have to be super high intensity. We love fitness. We love training people very often at very high intensities. But for the individual that has not been practicing fitness and is 45, maybe 50 years of age, the wonderful news is they can come in, enjoy it, and be capable of working out the next day without being too sore and struggling. So I find this to be incredible. Two and a half hours a week of 40 to 50% uh, intensity is a wonderful start. As your client loses some weight, hey, maybe they're getting leaner, they're getting in stronger, bring up the intensity. But right away, with the very general program, we have reversed a condition that is running the nation billions of dollars annually. And as I stated, think about this with type 2. You don't just go into a hospital for type 2. It's the eyes, the kidneys, the nerves, the teeth, okay, the heart, amputation. It, it's that much of a global impact and that negative on the human body. So it's wonderful news that we started that quickly. So is there anything new? No, I, I wish I could be saying to you, you know, as we go into exercise and nutrition, what is the revelation? There isn't none, but I think that's the good news. Because if it's a revelation, it may be some extreme dietary strategy that doesn't last very long or that is unsustainable. People cannot do it or a particular exercise protocol that just doesn't work for everyone. Even in the field of nutrition, it should be noted that many people are going to claim that maybe this is the single best dietary practice. Here is the best way to eat. Here is how humans were meant to eat. Honestly, as someone who's been doing this a very long time, I just don't get into those arguments. If someone chooses a dietary practice such as vegetarian, and they do that for ethical reasons, they believe it's the healthiest approach. Uh, they do it for religious observance. I am a full supporter of that. I think those are wonderful reasons to take that approach. However, I'm never one that is going to say to an individual, here is how we're meant to eat. That's something that we have the luxury to look at now as humans in the year 2020 because food is so plentiful. Our ancestors did not have that luxury. A one-bed drought or one bad uh, flood on the Nile River 10,000 years ago, and maybe you don't eat for three months. You don't really debate, what is my best way to eat? You eat, and you become omnivoric. So my point to all that is, we can't get into, well, here is the best diet for the diabetic, and you must extricate this food and only emphasize this. And by the way, if that's completely inconsistent with someone's previous nutritional practices, how long might they really adhere to that? Probably not very long. So there's a lot of differences. And by the way, it's probably the cumulative effect of everything that's giving people diabetes in, as it pertains to diet, fat, sugar, okay, refined carbohydrate, it's everything. Too many calories, sitting down, not moving. There's a great video, um, and he's an incredible research scientist, but this is about a 20-minute video on a TED Talk um, from a computational biologist named Dr. Aaron Segal, who does some incredible work looking at how blood sugar affects all of us differently. Um, I should say, forgive me on that. What I meant to say is the foods we eat affect our blood sugar differently. 
And one person might eat ice cream and skyrocket and the other may eat ice cream and not have the same insulinic response. So it's a combination in dietary practice of finding what's most sensible, what's most practical, and what that person may adhere to over the longer periods of time. Because we don't have one diet right now that says this is the type 2 diabetic diet. And if you do this unequivocally, it's going to change immediately. We can do that. We'll take a look at us on these future slides as to what works. Okay. But there's even room for manipulating those. Okay. A couple of days a week. Maybe my carbohydrates are a little lower, not out. Then the other days we bring them back up. An undulating dietary practice with healthy foods can be a wonderful way to go. But we have a monolithic philosophy now. I'm either this diet and that diet. And if I eat a blueberry, I'm out on this diet. That means, you know, it not only does it not make much sense, it restricts too many foods for someone to probably have the full benefit and enjoy a long-term practice of nutrition and something that's going to benefit their condition. So nothing new, like I said, uh, what do we know? Um, lean proteins work really well, right? Great. Avocados are great. Nuts are great. Legumes are great. Fish is wonderful. No matter the dietary practice, I don't think anybody can argue against fruits and vegetables. What can we say there? Well, you know, they're good, but they're not as nutrient dense as they were years ago. Or look, that may be true, but simultaneously, there's no nutrient density to skipping them. So we need to get them in. There may be certain dried fruits and advanced stages of type 2 diabetes you want to stay away from, but small boluses of fruit mixed with protein and healthy fats and vegetables are the foundation. Now, it's obvious, and I understand that not everybody's going to adhere to that practice, but the goal is to get them to adhere as often as they can. And sometimes it takes, depending upon the individual, sharing with them, hey, you know, right now your blood sugar is in a range that says you're type two, and according to your physician, you are. These are the negative potential negative effects. Let's see if we can reverse that. Let's Use these meals to beat this disease and give meaning to the food, not just the sign of a chicken because ah, it's going to make you lower your blood sugar. No, this is going to help you beat something so that you can live a quality life. Be here for your children, your family, your cousins, your brothers, your sisters, your grandchildren, if you have them. So purpose and reason very often has to be added to the dietary practice to really motivate and have people change behavior. Scaring may not work, but I think they should be cognizant of just how bad the condition can be if allowed to advance. So what are some of the diets, right? You know, a lot of times you hear, oh, let's get rid of all the carbohydrates. Uh, that, to me, makes very little sense. Um, you don't have to extricate all carbohydrates. We don't have really formal definitions. Uh, we have general definitions of what even a very low carbohydrate diet might be. That could be like 21 to 70 grams. That might be a pure keto approach, if you will. A lot of times we conflict high-protein diets, right, with a pure ketogenic diet, which is probably around 85% fat, 10% uh, protein, and 5% carbohydrate. So extreme measures may not be necessary to reverse this disease. Remember, we just said that couple of bicycle rides on a stationary bike, couple of walks around the track, and we can start increasing insulin sensitivity. It may be practical to say, you know what, in the beginning, well, we'll go with a moderate carbohydrate intake, maybe 
40% of the total calories, 30%, and we'll have the protein there in some fats. There are general macronutrient regions that may be prudent if the disease is advanced, but you would collaborate with a physician on that. And then you can help the individual guide and say, okay, well, here's about how much food would equal that. And here's how what your meals could look like. When you treat yourself, here's wiser choices for treating yourself. Um, here's what you want to do. Here's the frequency. So we want to help them to develop a dietary practice that is reasonable. Otherwise, if we push them right off, we're right back where we started. from. And yes, while there's an urgency to mitigate type two, if they have it, we also want to construct a plan that's feasible for them and not push them away so that they go back to those other foods immediately. So in the medical supervision, they might be somewhere in the range of 15 to 1800 calories daily. Okay. And by the way, 1800 calories in a, in a healthy food is quite a bit. One might think they're starving, but it's not. It seems it could be low calories for many people. Certainly, uh, there may be a basal metabolic rate for someone type 2 of 2200. So you don't want to go to 15. You don't want them starving. But again, initially, the primary thing is increase physical activity and change the construct of the food. And that weight will start to come down slowly for sure. So generally what? Carbohydrates should be moderated and the wiser choices certainly with our table sugars and added sugars do need to be kept an eye on. But I didn't tell you any of us here now something we didn't already know. It is that basic, sticking to the fundamentals and trying to construct this process and have them adhere to it. That's really what it is, right? How do we build it into their life and make them realize the benefits of these lifestyle changes? What are the best practices and what are the aims really in nutrition? Well, um, achieve the optimal blood glucose concentration. That is done through not just diet and exercise, but as we said earlier, good sleep, stress reduction. But pictures of sound, lean protein sources with some fat, carbohydrate at each meal, maybe having a balance of macronutrients at each meal can be advantageous. That can help regulate blood sugar, something that could be considered, right? You want to achieve optimal lipid concentrations too. What does that mean? Well, if we're eating boatloads of sugar, very often too, if someone is type 2 diabetic with high sugar intake, you're going to see triacylglycerols or triglycerides go up. That triglycerides in the bloodstream further increases insulin resistance. So we want to make sure we're doing some exercise to burn the fats and the sugar out of the blood and the proper dietary practice so that we utilize the sugar and the fat inactivity. As we stated earlier, the paradox is you have both of these substrates available in large amount and we can't use them until we start lowering the sugar, eating wiser and start being physically active. So we wanna also in this nutrition practice, um, get a normal optimal weight, get them close to factory weight. Factory weight is probably where we should be born Okay, our joints, our organs are meant to handle a certain amount of weight. They genetically knew. Our genes said, hey, yo, you're going to be about 185 pounds. I'll make your meniscus, your connective tissue, your organs for an individual about 185 pounds. So when, if we add 100 to that, everything is struggling. So we want to govern the weight and get that down. That helps us stay more active. We stay more active. We burn more blood sugar. It's a positive cascade. 
as you already know. And we've got to just improve the overall health through this dietary practice. And simplicity does that. Under optimal circumstances, here are some great foods, all right? I mean, we're not talking about chugging coconut oil. Uh, there is debate about it. It's on the diagram where I think that everything else here is wonderful. I agree we're not going to get everyone to make such a change and such an extreme change to eat all these foods, but we would love to find ways to incorporate some of them in the diet. Many of you I know are at the elite level in your own fitness program, so you already are eating like this. This is a diagram to say, hey, you know, if everything was going perfectly, here's what we'd do. But that's a big jump for many. But incorporating some of these foods certainly makes it, uh, a, you know, we have a better shot and doing all the things we're seeking to do. Lower blood sugar, manage weight, and feel better. Now, I get, you know, I can understand if this slide would make some people angry, but there have been cases where I've had to do this. I don't, no one wants to send someone to a fast food restaurant. Nobody. But one of the arguments against dietary practice is, you know, it's too hard to eat well if you don't have a lot of money, and that's fair. That's worthy of consideration. The socioeconomic argument in food structure and health is valid. But my contention, if you will, is that most people know a few choices they can make to be healthier. I don't want them going to a fast food restaurant. But I think if someone did, they understand that that chicken sandwich to the left on the screen is better than that big double burger over there. No brands mentioned. All right. And they know an iced tea that is sweetened isn't wonderful, but it's probably better than a chocolate shake. And a blueberry muffin, you know what? It has more fat than I'd like. It has more sugar than I'd like, but it probably is better than fries. What is the point of this? Well, that may be where we're starting from. It's not always that we can start people here as the optimal diet and dietary practice for type 2 diabetic. We're moving people from all the way, from the left or the right, and trying to move them and mediate them into a practical range. So we, we, we might not get out of the box with just chicken and tilapia and broccoli, if you will, if those were the optimal foods. But if this diagram, if you look at it, is even showing. And again, I've gotten beat up because people say, Tony, are you condoning this food? I'm not condoning it. I've just been around a long time. And people go there sometimes when they tell me that they're not. Okay, so what am I trying to do? Make the best possible choice under any circumstance that we possibly can. And if they did this two times a week, even change this, it's a 500 calorie di difference per meal, 600 really. That's 1,200 calories a week. You multiply that by 50, we start getting up 65, 70,000 calories. And that is one meal. But what if they made another small change at the second meal? Then we're at seven, 800 calories a day and less sugar. So perfection is not the goal, but wiser choices. Where we start someone depends on where they're starting from. In many cases, the nutrition practice, we have to collaborate with them. We just can't dictate it. So anyway, my point here is even, by the way, the price of these meals is about the same. So I'm not telling you that you could eat really healthy on a very low budget, but I am proposing that we can make wiser choices. And if that wiser choice pushes back diabetes five more years and 10 more years, 
And along the way, that person gains more insight as to why they need to do it, then we've done okay by that time so that we can continue to push the condition back. And that's just the point of this, that most people know how to make a wiser choice. And if they're in a condition or forgive me, if they're in a situation or an environment where there's nothing but fast food and they do want to make some health improvements, they still can make wiser choices. Yeah, we can help them shop more effectively and change it other ways, but it's still the better choice is always there. So guiding the client, you all have your own strategies. I'm just going to share some that may be of value. I hope that they are. And they could just lead you and you could throw it out and go, I wouldn't do that, Tony. And then, but it makes you think about what you would do. That's the goal here. In doing this for so long, I share ideas and concepts in the hope that I'll get them bounced back to me. And together we find ways to do things more effectively. But when I work with people nutritionally, even in sport, in anything in life, the first bullet talks about a motivational interviewing client-centered approach. What does that mean? It's what we've chatted about. I can't dictate immediately. You as an NASM, personal trainer, performance enhancement specialist, the great new certification, the certified nutrition coach, all of those NASM credentials are wonderful. And they help you have the knowledge of things to do. But we can't just dictate to someone if it's not going to be feasible. So how do I put them on a dietary protocol when if they're from a certain part of the country, they've never eaten fish in their whole life? And now I'm telling them to go get salmon every day and they grew up on a ranch. Those things are not going to work. Okay, maybe culturally they love the rice and beans. I have friends who grew up on that. I'm not taking that out, but we're going to find ways to make those foods Maybe change the proportion of bean to rice, change when we eat it, change what we add to it, change some of the things we cook that in. That's client-centered. Finding a way to negotiate a lifestyle for them that will work. Learning developmental food patterns, very important. We've talked about how did they grow up eating? Because this is going to impact what they're probably willing to do now. But it also may have an impact on why they have the condition. How do we move them away from it? So historically, I know if I eat fish, immediately I'm going to feel better and look better. It's probably in my head, but that's enough for me. I grew up a commercial fisherman. It's my family's business. I've been eating probably two fish meals a day since I'm a boy, right? That's my developmental eating pattern. If you put me on steak every day, which not saying it's bad, I just don't want it. So that would influence my dietary practice. And these are things we need to consider, even when we're trying to get them through the diabetic condition. So that's the collaborate, not dictate concept, right? Uh, you just couple the improved dietary practice with any form of physical activity that they're willing to do. Sometimes we're like, oh, you got to get this much cardio. You, if they want to go dancing and they want to play golf and they want to move, that may be enough initially, as long as it's more movement than they did before. We saw the low levels of intensity. Activity of daily living adds up. During COVID, I had two groups of friends, ones that did nothing and ones that didn't go into the office and did way more ADL and lost a lot of weight. So ADL adds up. Get them moving wherever and whenever they'll agree to do that and find activities that they like the most and incorporate with that with as great as frequency as possible. Another thing that I think is so important, one meal, right? 
one change at a time. That's a process goal. Uh, focusing overly, and it's easier said than done because we all do it on the outcome alone, is really uh, a tendency but ineffective. Okay, I had three good meals today, and then my fourth wasn't great. Hey, you know what? That's 75%. That's pretty darn good. That's a heck of a lot better. Here's how we have to manage them through that and get them back on track. Small changes because it's very difficult. Not every one of us can go from zero to 60 immediately. And they're putting effort and they're putting self-regulation, discipline effort, energy into so many other things in life that are required that asking too much in the dietary practice and too quick of a change might be challenging and may, they may not stay there. Okay. One thing I think it's important, they should be treating themselves and they should plan it. What's the best treat for them according to their physician and what you agreed with, with them. And when are they doing it? So we don't want them to have to eat perfect all the time, but they've got to be reasonable in that. But forecasting using a strategy, Hey, you're going to the wedding. Okay. Well, this is what's going to be there. Let's see if we can do good Saturday, Sunday night, and you can have some of this at that wedding. They have to be alive. They have to enjoy it. But if 70 to 80% of time, their dietary practice has improved, where does that bring them compared to where they were in the practice that gave them this really awful condition? Um, if they're going out in advance, what do we do? I always have people look at the menus in advance. Don't wait to get to the restaurant. I never understood that, actually. Even when I would go and worked at a major company, I would walk with my friends uh, to the cafe, which I actually ran there and tried to help get healthy food there. But we would walk to it and I'd ask everyone, hey, what are you getting while you're on your way there? And they'd say, well, I don't know. I didn't get to the cafe yet. Well, I, it was foreign to me that they didn't know what they were getting. My choice is already made. So we can help people make wiser choices in advance. And again, plan some fun, but don't go wait at the restaurant and then start looking at the menu and watch what everyone else is getting. Go there, know what you can do, and know what's best for you beforehand. And that's an eating plan. Strategize. I'm going to work. I better bring a bar because I'm going to be in meetings all day. Don't sit there and get stuck on that meeting food. We've got to help them to know that. It may be three things they don't even like, and it's terrible for them, and they're forced to eat it. Eating. The environment will always impact it. I don't keep Nutella in the house because if I do, the jar is going down at one time. And I mean that. Okay, your environment, the proximity of how close food is, how, what type of food is there. So we coach them to the best of our ability to limit the treats that are available on site in the house. When I need a treat food, I make it so I have to go out and get it. So in case I'm not in the mood to go out and get it, then I'm not eating it, which works out better for me. And clearly define the goals, not just I want to lose five pounds, write them down. I beat this condition. I'm active. I eat well. I am here for my granddaughter. I will improve at work. I'm going to be, have better cognition. I'm going to play golf better. I'm going to enjoy my vacation. More. Everything that is important to them, everything. Let's find out. That's why we use the assessment, because then we could marry food. We can marry the exercise to the things that matter, not just somebody saying, hey, do this. It's going to be good for you to cure this. No. What's important to you? Well, you know what? You eat some brown rice. It might actually make you better at that. And then is that going to solve everything? No. But it increases the chances of adherence in long-term strategy for exercise and uh, good dietary practice. And last, I would say nutrition is an art. 
And I never understood to this day why we expect someone that never in their life has practiced it before, meaning they're 45 and they've never really worked on creating a dietary practice and nutrition practice. They just eat ad libitum and whatever's there, they grab and they don't think about it. Yet we expect in two weeks for them to master the timing, the foods they should eat, when they can treat themselves, how they manage their hunger. How do they plan in a vacation? For me, it's taken years. That is the science and that is the art and where they need to be married. We know certain principles work. How we bring those principles, where and when we bring those principles into our life and their life is the art. So this presentation ends very simply with the concept that we have an, what I would consider a national emergency when it comes to our health. And that is wonderful news for you young fitness professionals because you're the answer and health professionals. NASM team can go out there and not just make people get abs, but you can change the entire socioeconomic structure of the United States. That is a wonderful opportunity. That is an incredible mission. And you're very close when it comes to diabetes to turning that around. We are very close, as our title says, to preventing it. So as you go on in your fitness and health mission, I wish you luck. I would like to thank the NASM team because they are wonderful. I've never had anything but an incredible experience with them and all the members and all the certified professionals I've met through the organization. So our goal is to continue to go out there, help people, to improve the quality of their life, improve their health. Many times we've succeeded. If somebody comes walking into us with their chin down and they leave with their chin up, then I think we're doing what matters most in life. So for NASM Optima 2020, thank you all. I hope to see you live next year, okay, and under different circumstances. And keep going and making a difference. Thanks, everyone.